Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. In 1968, a budding New York City entrepreneur who provided immigrants with jobs takes a Florida vacation with his family. Meanwhile, his relative, an employee, is murdered on Long Island. Upon returning to New York, Sam Summer learns the fate of his wife's uncle, Irving Silver, when he doesn't show up to carpool to work. Three days pass with no clues about his death. Then a recent contractor at Sam's Deli sets up a meeting to share news on the investigation. Within moments after pulling into a donut shop parking lot to meet, Sam is kidnapped by detectives with the engine still running. While held in custody, he is beaten and allegedly confesses to the murder. Court proceedings amount to do-overs, appellate victories and overturns, and mysterious documents. Sam is found guilty of murder in 1971. With short order, within short order, his case is highlighted in college law courses. After surviving years of power-hungry guards and moving often from prison to prison for good behavior, Sam is released on parole in 1991. Justice continued to railroad him until 2015 when he finds an eerie document in the police archives that proves his innocence. That discovery triggered the reopening of the case and free legal assistance. What will a momentous turn of events bring next? The book that we're featuring this evening is Railroaded, Framed for Murder, Fighting for Justice, with my special guest, PR pro and author, Christopher Jossard. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview. Christopher Jossard. Yes, Dan, thank you for having me on Blog Talk Radio. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. I just got to make one correction. We're now on Spreaker, despite that little Blog Talk Radio at the beginning. Uh-huh, yes, <laughs> no problem. Here we go. Formerly BTR. So, um, I want to ask you right off, uh, how did you come to be the author of this? How did you come around to deciding to write this book? How did you be in a position to write this book, Railroaded? Just whole separate story in its own right, Dan, and I don't want to take up too much time on it, but it is a rather unique opportunity. For me, it was a divine moment, totally. So over here in Wisconsin, I've been a public relations professional for 27 years, do a lot of writing, work with a lot of media. Long story short, there is a uh, public safety training center here in Appleton, Wisconsin, probably one of the best in the nation. It's an 80-acre facility that trains the FBI, the Department of Justice, and so forth. There was a Crime Writers Academy that was held here in 2015, which was pretty cool. We had a bunch of uh, probably between 150 and 200 mostly fiction crime writers who gathered here in Appleton, Wisconsin, which is just south of Green Bay for your listeners mm-hmm. in the sense of geography. 
Uh, at that event, Karen Slaughter, which I'm sure you know very well, one of the best uh, right. fiction crime writers around, she happened to be the keynote address main speaker at this function. So I get a call simply because of my role at the college from a publicist of hers in downtown New York, simply asking me if I would help get Miss Slaughter on some regional media to help promote her new book. Well, it's what I do in my profession anyway, Dan, so it was a natural fit. I met Miss Slaughter. It was a great experience. Long story short, again, I'll just push fast forward here. Uh, as a result of that event, the publicist in New York called to thank me, and she asked me the loaded question, is there anything I can ever do for you? Well, and I've been writing for many, many years, published articles internationally, done a few books here and there, and I just said, hey, looking to network with anyone in New York, do you have any connections that you can share with me? Here's the divine moment. This publicist knew a friend who actually employed in a very small office uh, the great-granddaughter of a gentleman who was wrongfully convicted of murder in 1968 and was looking for a writer to tell his story. And that's how the whole thing started. Pretty amazing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about, before we get to the actual date in question, Yes. yes. May 22, 1968, take us back to the origins of Samuel summer and and yeah, his yeah. background which is very important to this story his his work background his family background and and take us up to where he meets his soulmate elaine take us absolutely back. you bet dan <clears throat> and on that note one of the things that we discovered in looking into mr summer's story was that he was not your typical victim or accused victim of a hate crime. And I'll touch base on that a little bit later. Um, with all due respect to people who have to go through that whole judicial process of, of wrongdoing. But a lot of the hate crimes today, Dan, that are portrayed often shed light on people who live, you know, underprivileged, underserved lives. I get it. You know, they're, they're maybe living in a, a ghetto area. They may be targets of unfair, you know, judicial practices by law enforcement and so forth. Mr. Summer was completely different. So he grew up in the South Bronx, uh, hardworking, uh, middle-class family that was in the garment industry in New York in the 1940s and 50s, Jewish-American family. Uh, Mr. Summer lands a job when he's 16 years old in high school, and the job was so fast-paced, so moving, and put him on a road to success at such a young age. He ended up dropping out of high school to deliver meats and, and various dairy goods around the big city for a couple of companies. And mind you, back in that time, in the, in the, in the 1950s in New York, there were a lot of new things coming into play. Delicatessens, for one. I know that Katz is in downtown New York, which is still there from the 50s, uh, was a little right. a, a little part of this book. Mr. Summer became an instant entrepreneur at a young age. Um, what he did by the time he was even 19, 20 years old is he was already looking at owning his own business. And he was the first uh, kosher deli to ever be put up in Long Island. Uh, it was put up in Comac. It was called Rosen's. And I believe that was uh, put into play in 1965 while he was growing a, a young family with his wife, Elaine, who he happened to meet in an old 
pool hall setting in the South Bronx. She came from the quote-unquote other side of the tracks, a little bit more of an upper-class upbringing for Elaine. And so they're growing this large family and just trying to make ends meet, get, getting these uh, businesses off the ground in terms of delicatessens and uh, wholesale food services. Uh, a little side note, too, to his business, when he was in his late 20s, Mr. Summer was already introducing catering, if you will, in the areas of healthcare and education throughout New York and parts of New Jersey. So by the time he was 30, he was making in the neighborhood of 100 and um, he was making what equivalent would be today about 150 to 200 thousand dollars a year. He was making that in cash at that time, and he was a very giving man, a very much an innovator. He loved employing immigrants in the greater New York area to give them a shot at the American dream. So he was really uh, quite a community man, quite a family man, and very important part of New York City's food service industry and the economic vitality that was attached to that at the time. As you write in the book, you, you tell us, uh, give us a historic background as well about law enforcement and how it had been mired in, in, uh, in corruption and scandal at various times. Uh, but you also talk about the role of the mafioso in certain industries in New York and yes. their, basically their, their grasp um, entered into all kinds of industries like the garment industry. Tell us a little bit about the reality of the mafioso in New York and in its effect in industry at that time. Yeah, Dan, it was prevalent, you know, back in that time. We're talking, again, you know, 50s, 60s, uh, when a lot of different markets were trying to identify themselves in the Big Apple. You mentioned the garment industry, and then food service kind of took off. And a lot of things were happening right there in that central hub, Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx. But not a lot was happening out on Long Island. Uh, Mr. Summer uh, was able to work closely with some people down in the um, Manhattan and the Brooklyn and Bronx areas to store some of his vehicles that he needed to make his deliveries and got kind of caught up. Uh, he admits he got kind of caught up in uh, being educated, if you will, by the street very quickly. When we talk about the mafia back then, the carting industry, better known as the garbage collection industry, was just booming back then. And Mr. Summer was a well-respected businessman, and I know that he was approached on a couple of occasions by members of the mafia to offer some business planning, business strategy, if you will, to expand the carting industry to Long Island. Mr. Summer said that he would be more than happy to, and he did, he acquiesced to help with the business expansion, but he had nothing to do with any of the money. He just simply didn't want to deal with it. At the same time, and this is an important part of the story, Mr. Summer's uh, wife, Elaine, her relative, her uncle, a gentleman by the name of Irving Silver, who is the deceased subject matter of the book, he was going through some difficult times in his late 50s. Uh, his wife was suffering um, from, from an illness, and he was trying to control his son, Ronnie Silver, who sadly got caught up in the street. He got caught up with a lot of the mobster activities. Gambling was a big problem that he had. Mr. Silver was basically kind of down and out when he lost his wife, Jeanette, uh, in the late 60s. And so Sam, Mr. Summer, took Mr. Silver on to help turn his life around by being involved in the 
a food wholesale business and the delicatessen businesses that he was uh, enterprising at the time. And that's an important part of the story because we'll find out that Mr. Silver was never really able to let go of the street that got control of him. And, you know, you mentioned law enforcement, Dan. What's interesting in the movie Serpico, I think we all remember right. that one, uh, portrayed with the corruption of, of the downtown New York City police force in certain precincts, played, of course, by Al Pacino in the uh, blockbuster movie. What's interesting about that, that was pr- pretty much going on right around the same time that uh, the law enforcement in Suffolk County, which is one of the two main counties in Long Island, of course, uh, started to become corrupt. So, you know, it's hard to pinpoint, Dan, really, when you try to connect all these dots with the mafioso and the um, law enforcement, who's grease and who's palm at the time. But it, it's strikingly similar uh, that everything that was portrayed back then was really happening to Mr. Summer. He was kind of like right in the middle of it. And while he was growing an empire, sadly, he got uh, he got kidnapped. He got the rug just pulled completely out from him. And we could talk about that next. Well, let's talk about this Harold Goberman and his uh, aliases Masterson. Let's yes. talk about um, the circumstances in which uh, Goberman uh, meets Sam and the business that is uh, proposed between them and Silver. Yeah, absolutely. So Harold Goberman went through uh, went uh, with an alias name. This this is a guy who was uh, let in and out of prison on, on numerous occasions. He was a convicted felon. Turns out that he became an informant for the Suffolk County Police Department. We don't specifically know when, but we do know based on court documents that it was at least in 68 or 69 because it came through in the uh, Huntley hearing that Mr. Summer ended up winning. We could touch base on that in a moment. But Harold Goberman um, tragically was caught up uh, not only with the informant role, whether that was legitimate or illegitimate, but he had ties to the mafia. And he wanted to become involved uh, with Mr. Summer's business. And ironically, Mr. Summer goes on a vacation in spring of 68 with his young family to Florida, leaves the business in the hands of Irving Silver, his relative. And Mr. Summer at the time looked at it as a wonderful growing opportunity for Irving Silver to gain some independence because he had gone through losing his wife. He had gone through some troubles on the street with with his son. Here's what happens. While Sam Summer is vacationing in Florida, Mr. Silver loans Harold Goberman $5,000 of Summer's money without Summer knowing about it. Two days after he loans Goberman the money, Goberman pays Silver back the check bounces. Silver goes to the second precinct in uh, Suffolk County to report the incident on or around May 15th of 1968, Two days later, Silver is found dead in a ditch off of Wheatley Road near Melville. So that's what started this whole string of what we call a very odd series of events that took place during the week of May 17th, 1968, when Silver was found killed. You say that uh, Sam and his family were on vacation in Florida. Correct. What does he do? He he cuts that vacation, cut, he cuts it short and leaves yes. his family back there. Why yes. is that? What happens? That's because, uh, that? yep, yep, absolutely. Sam came back to New York 
uh, around May 15th, two days before Mr. Silver was killed. I believe he flew in that night, and he spent the following day with his relative, his family member, his business partner, because Silver was nervous about the whole transaction that he did without Sam's permission with um, Goberman. He wanted to come clean, and he felt scared. He felt scared for his life. So Sam came back, and Sam basically assured him, you know what, this will all work out. Why don't we just resume um, work the next day? He had all the intentions of flying back to Florida and finishing his vacation. So they were going to resume work for one more day and just get kind of caught up on things the morning of May 17th, which was a Friday, and Mr. Summer never met I'm sorry, Mr. Silver never met Sam Summer for their morning carpool, which is something that they did as a a tradition together. And that's when a few hours later on that day, Sam discovers from Irving Silver's son, Ronnie, remember the one that had the gambling problems and was caught up in the mob, that uh, Irving was was dead. What else does he tell him in terms of the circumstances surrounding his father's death? Strange, strange set of circumstances. Ronnie Silver actually changes the story on a couple of occasions. Plays a little bit of what we call a cat and mouse game with Sam Summer that morning. Uh, Obviously, Sam is worried. Uh, His business partner doesn't show up, so he starts calling his house uh, over um, near Kew Gardens. Um, Finally gets a hold of of Ronnie Silver, who uh, at first um, really didn't know what to tell Sam. And then he later... Shortly thereafter, discloses to Sam that he can't find his dad, his dad is missing. And then he, within that same morning, they connect again on the telephone, and he says to Sam that his dad is killed. So just to, coming from a son, an immediate family member like that, it was just very, very strange when all that happened. Um, later on, we learn and we find out that, you know, Ronnie Silver takes a stand during a murder trial, I don't mean to get ahead here, but, um, and and really kind of more or less wore the hat of a no contest um, kind of feedback during that whole trial situation. But that whole, here's what happened as a result of that whole kind of fishy disclosure from the son about his own father. That made Sam really just kind of roll up his sleeves and want to help get to the bottom of what happened. Now, obviously he knew about Goberman because that's why he came back from Florida Silver had told him about that. So Sam was going to work with the police to look into Goberman, not in his own. That's an important part of the story. Sam already knew Goberman. Goberman had uh, had done some side jobs for a few of his um, businesses leading up to the Florida vacation. He had repaired some light fixtures here and there. So Sam was just trying to give the guy a second chance at life from being in and out of prison based on trusting Silver. But Sam knew better not to go after Goberman about this whole silver thing. So he was trying to work with the police as to what was going on. And you know what's really kind of odd from the get-go, too? And this all seems to make sense later on when we find these documents. The police really were were somewhat um, unresponsive at first when Sam called. But then on a quick turnaround in the same day, they called Sam in for questioning. First, they wanted him to identify the body. And then they they engage in a series of questions that kind of insinuated that maybe he was the one who killed Irving, and Sam really didn't appreciate that. So there was just kind of this rough, tough attitude that Suffolk County was looking at Sam right away on that 17th of May when Silver was found, but they really didn't say he was a suspect. Then there was a quick turnaround on a funeral due to, uh, due to Jewish tradition, 
And then a few days goes by, and we get to a, a kidnapping that happens on May 22nd. Let's not forget that there's a, he talks to police and then says, I will come down to, and talk to you later. I have this important thing to do. Yes. He doesn't yes. do it. Why? Why? Yeah, sorry to, yep, sorry to miss that detail. So what Sam decided to do, uh, he had made an arrangement after um, the Suffolk County detectives went and visited him at his office, and he made an arrangement to go back down and meet with them later that day. Sam did not um, follow up on that request because he wanted to do it at a later time after he told his family, out of respect to Elaine, what happened. She had not known what happened to her relative yet, and he wanted to notify the family first. But then he, he offered to talk to the Suffolk County detectives again at another time, and that, from a scheduling standpoint, a formality did not happen. So we're talking about that weekend, 18th, 19th, Saturday, Sunday, um, 20th, 21st, 22nd, which leads up to the next time he had a uh, an encounter with the police. Let's go to that. Uh, you say it's around 8 o'clock, May 22nd, 1968. But take us a little bit before that to the phone call and Elaine's reaction yeah. and the conversation. And then who does he get the call from and where does he go? Yeah, the evening of May 22nd. Again, now we have to, you know, just kind of do our best here. This happened so long ago, obviously, and Mr. Summers, 83 today. His wife is deceased. She passed a couple years ago. Let's just try to put ourselves in the shoes of the emotions that are going on with this family. Elaine is beside herself. Uh, Her uncle's gone. There's no answer. There's not even an investigation into anyone else. There's no information shared with the Summer or Silver families since they talked to Sam, identifying the body and meeting him at his office back on the 17th, there's really nothing in between there, Dan. So right. what's going on? You know, where are they at? Are they looking at anybody else? What about Goberman? Well, here's the eerie part. What about Goberman? It's dinner time, uh, the evening of May 22nd, Wednesday, 1968, and the summer household gets a phone call. Who is it? It's Harold Goberman. And this was all um, brought up in that first appellate hearing, which Mr. Summer won. So this is not something that was a he said, she said. He gets a call from Harold Goberman who says, basically, look, Sam, I got information on what happened to Irving Silver. Can you meet me tonight? I'll talk to you about it over at Dunkin' Donuts. This is in Comac, and the Dunkin' Donuts uh, still stands today. It's only literally four blocks from Sam's house at the time. Right. Sam is shaking, you know, he's, when he's talking to Goberman, and he basically um, runs this by Elaine, who ha- would have nothing to do with this. It just smelled fishy from the get-go. But Sam right. decided to go meet with Goberman because they needed some information. They had nothing. So Sam makes an arrangement with his wife and another couple, uh, the Cerrones, a dear friend of Sam, the guy worked in DOJ for many years, that if Sam wasn't back from Dunkin' Donuts, again, four blocks away in a certain time parameter, 20, 30 minutes, could they please come and check on him? Smart thing for him to do. So he takes his gargantuan German shepherd dog that they had at the time, puts him in the back seat of a station wagon, probably for some you know, form of security, and drives over to Dunkin' Donuts. This is absolutely mind-boggling, and I was just out in Long Island from Wisconsin last about a month and a half ago, and I reenacted this crime scene. 
Sam pulls into Dunkin' Donuts, and as far as I know, over all these years, I don't think the parking lot's been renovated. Obviously, things have changed around the building, and the building's been renovated, but it's a very thin parking lot. He pulls into the parking lot on that on that evening. Sun's going down, but still out. And the three detectives, well-dressed, he didn't know they were detectives, okay, three well-dressed men start approaching his car right at him before he can even turn into a parking stall. So he stops in the middle of this parking lot, and they start yelling, Summer, Summer, these complete strangers. Where's Goberman? Goberman is nowhere to be found. Nowhere. Three people come. They basically kidnap Sam. His car is found 15, 20 minutes later from his family and another police officer and that couple, the Cerrones. His door on his car was still ajar. The engine was still running. These people didn't even turn the engine off. These, You and I know they're detectives. He didn't know what was going on at, at the time. And his dog was going berserk in the back seat of the car. So he's literally yanked. By the time he's dragged across the lot and put into a detective's car, he knows they're detectives by that time. There were some witnesses from the uh, donut shop. There were a group of teenagers and apparently the manager on duty that Sam's wife Elaine and the couple and the police officer were able to talk to. But in another mysterious set of circumstances, when... The, detect, well, the police officer on the scene claims that he calls down to the 4th Precinct homicide in, uh, in Suffolk County. There, there really was this exchange of, I don't know what has happened. You'll have to file a missing persons report. It just smelled too fishy from that time with his wife and the couple. They obviously knew something was wrong. A car was running. Now, a missing re- persons report is fine and dandy, but there was a little more sense of urgency, obviously, with the family. And so he's taken down to 4th Precinct, and what happens to him, unbeknownst to anyone else, is he's brought into an interrogation room by these three detectives, and he is beaten repeatedly with phone books trying to get a signed confession for the murder of Irving Silver. Now, you talk about Elaine and the couple um, that surrounds, and they're asking for answers, but they do hear by their persistence, Elaine's persistence especially, that they now believe that he's in the building. What does Elaine do? This is a very dramatic scene. What do they do when they learn that he may be in that building being held? Yeah, they eventually, when I say they, I'm talking about Elaine and the couple, they eventually get their way over to the 4th Precinct, still not having any idea where Sam is and where her husband is, because they're going there under the premise to fill out a missing persons report. What's really fascinating is that Phil Cerrone, uh, from the, the couple that joined him, uh, joined uh, Elaine down there, actually runs into a guy he knows because of his work in, in DOJ. You know, they kind of cross paths with law enforcement, obviously. Finds out that the uh, person he runs into in the lobby of the 4th Precinct slips up uh, a slip of the tongue, basically insinuating that Mr. Summer was in the building. And he felt bad he shouldn't have said that. That sends Elaine into a whirlwind, a demanding with the desk clerk to talk to her husband. The desk clerk, you know, I wasn't there, Dan. I don't know if he was buying time or if he didn't know what was up or if he was just, you know, told ahead of time, don't say anything. We don't really know that. We just know that Elaine was on a mission to see her husband, and she goes to the lower level of that building 
and is stopped by other members because it's authorized personnel only beyond that point. And she is told to go back up, back to the desk where she eventually finds out he's there. But she can't talk to him at that time. They send her home with the Cerrone's. And long story short, again, just based on our time here today, because there's a lot of years to cover yet, um, the very next day there's an arraignment scheduled that quickly for the um, the charge of murder with Sam. But meanwhile, through the night, he's taken way over to the eastern end of Long Island, and he's kind of patched up a little bit because he was – he was beaten enough where his there's a there's a mug shot in the book that shows that his left eye was closed. Incidentally, the mug shot piece of evidence comes up later in the early eighties that there was a second mug shot that was covered up and concealed. I don't mean to go down a rabbit trail with your listeners right now, but I had to just kind of throw that in there. So with the arraignment, the circus act of court proceedings ensues. And we've done a lot of research on this. That's why it took about almost four years to write this book. Now you talk about, we just talked about a little bit about this beating, but you you go into big description because obviously Sam tells you all about it afterwards. Yes. And, uh, yes. What, is the, well, what, are it, the, what do the beatings entail, but also yep. what are they asking him? What are they telling him? What are they saying to him? They're basically saying, you are going to sign this confession in so many words thug-like behavior. He's going back and forth denying he did this. They keep beating him. They beat him so bad to the point where he was stripped naked. He was stripped naked, and there was actually a pretty decent beating on his stomach, too, because later on the court documents prove that he had discoloration, a yellow color on his stomach. So... Yeah, I mean, it turned ugly. It turned ugly in a hurry. And, of course, the uh, the officers, and I think probably one of the biggest mistakes they made from the get-go on this thing, Dan, is that they totally denied, almost to the 100th degree, of doing any kind of physical uh, beating to him at all. When they, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, probably would have been better off saying, yeah, they roughed him up a little bit. But no, he was at one time curled up on a ball on the floor, naked. Now, obviously he's arraigned. He has to get uh, yes. representation. Who steps forward? Who does he, who does he pick? And uh, how do they proceed with getting information from first discovery, but just trying to find out what really happened? Yeah, a gentleman by, the name of, yep, gentleman by the name of Eugene Lamb, L-A-M-B just like the animal, had a private practice uh, over near Kew Gardens. He comes into play based on a referral from um, someone Sam knew in the uh, private detective uh, industry. So the, the the referral seemed pretty legitimate. Eugene Lamb comes into play. But but here's, here's where the whole thing just unravels. And uh, I, I can't wait to pull the curtain for your listeners later to, to find out to, to share with them what we really found out all these years later. But the arraignment on May 23rd, uh, number one, there was no indictment paperwork for Sam's arrest. Now, at the right. time, no one really knew that was going on at the time. The judge 
for that arraignment in Comac on May 23rd did reference the appearance of Mr. Summer. And before that arraignment could officially be completed, the judge wanted to order what's called a Huntley hearing. And it's unique to the state of New York only. And it's a special hearing that is supposed to focus on the voluntariness of a confession and the method in which someone is arrested, a.k.a. mostly Miranda rights. So because of Mr. Summers' appearance, um, this arraignment was actually pushed back a day. And I, based on what Mr. Summers has told me and based on his recollection that there wasn't even an indictment presented on that day, the judge Mm -hmm. put all this into consideration, ordered a Huntley hearing. Now, the Huntley hearing didn't take place right away. It took place... Um, in 1969. This was May of 68. But the arraignment got postponed until the 24th. And apparently during that arraignment, the count or the um, prosecution uh, at, at a very peculiar time in this proceeding runs in the back of the courtroom with an arraignment Here's some research I did recently through Stony Brook University and through the Suffolk Sun, which was an old Long Island newspaper that folded up in the 70s. They actually had an article published, Dan. And in that article, it said the indictment was rammed, R-A-M-M-E-D, rammed through in quotes. I can't believe I found that about a month ago because it ties into a lot of other things. That indictment had uh, no signature on it. Eugene Lamb, the defense, brought that to the judge's attention. The DA played the oversight card. Sorry, we had to get this quickly. Um, We'll get it signed. Judge let it go as an oversight. But what we'll find out years later, that wasn't an oversight. It It was an unofficial indictment. There never was. This is stunning. I don't know if there's anything like this in this country, Dan. I've had some some law folks who I know here locally do a little bit of research uh, when it comes to a murder charge. But Mr. Summer may be the only person in judicial history in this country to have served prison time for murder without a grand jury indictment for his arrest. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Let's talk. Let's talk about it is. Let's talk about this confession though too. Um, the, the total lack of surprise from Sam about even this confession. This is odd. I mean, usually you know yep. you were involved in in something like this. He was asked to sign. Tell him. Tell our audience about the surprise. Yeah. Well, he was asked to sign. Um, first of all, it got so desperate the night he was beaten in the interrogation room that there was no official paperwork, if you will, for a confession. It was done on a a tablet, Um, a regular notebook. It was handwritten by a detective, Thomas Gill, who to this day is is still around. Um, Sam didn't even know what the heck he was... He was beaten so badly, it got to a point where he didn't even know what the heck they wanted him to sign. That's how how cloudy this became. And... um, he, to his recollection, he never signed anything, but his name was written on a um, notebook pad of paper that he did confess to the murder. That is tied directly into theory, of course, Dan, theory, the right. alleged indictment that the county was able to then get to 
charge him for murder. What was their idea in terms of motive? They did, of course, some conducted some investigation. What did they think the motive was? What was their theory? Well, if you want to back up the theory a little bit, um, I mean, there's a number of things here. Let's start with Goberman. He's the easiest piece to start with. Since Goberman was an informant for Suffolk County, and again, that was corroborated by testimony in a law book, since Goberman was an informant, we know that connections Goberman had with the mafioso wanting to also invest in Summer's businesses, which Sam did not want anything to do. He was very um, willing to help plan for the carting industry, but again, didn't want anything to do with the money. We know that the motive there could have very easily have been a cover-up for Harold Goberman taking the life of Irving Silver. Now, Goberman had a stipulation against him. I mean, he was uh, a convicted felon, one more strike, and he was out. So the two worked hand-in-hand in in cohorts with um, trying to bring Summer down because he was the easiest guy to pin for this whole thing. So that's where we think the connection between the mafia, Harold Goberman, and Suffolk County in terms of money and power all started right there as as the motive. Now, they claim the motive for Sam had something to do because they were him and Silver were business partners. That's what they tried to pin on him as the motive on that end of the spectrum. Right. Now, with this uh, Huntley hearing, what is the result of this Huntley hearing other than that fortuitous um, admission by DeLuca that he did notice some abuse when he looked at Samuel. So what happens as yeah. a result of that Huntley hearing, and then what happens yeah. afterwards? Yeah, you know, this is, this is amazing. Before I get to the, to the, to the obvious, well, may, it might not be so obvious, I guess, conclusion of the Huntley hearing, Elaine Summer stole the show in that, mm-hmm. um, in that Huntley hearing. Dan, I've got I to level with you. I've been around uh, a few blocks over the years it, when it comes to written material and articles and books. I never read anything in my entire life. I mean, I'm reading a law book that was published in 1971. And in that law book, it, it publishes the entire transcript of the Huntley hearing of Sam Summer. Law book was found at St. John's Law Library, was published by Paperno and Goldstein way back when. I'm reading through the transcript of his Huntley hearing, and they published it because it was really an example of, of the, the dirty deeds behind trying to frame someone for a voluntary confession. And I'm reading Elaine Summers' testimony on the stand, and I am in tears. And I, I mean, this happened how many decades ago? But it put me inside that courtroom, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. So these detectives from Suffolk County during the Huntley hearing really put, put their own shoe in their mouth because they claimed, they claimed that they were on their way the evening of May 22nd, 1968. They were on their way to visit Sam at his house to talk to him about the murder of Irving Silver. Not to arrest him, but to talk to him. They happened to see him pull into, I'll, I'll wrap those words with quotes, into Dunkin' Donuts instead of having to drive to his house. So right then and there, they are committing perjury because it was 
established later in the Huntley hearing by the same detectives that they did greet him in the middle of the lot at his car, and they did gently, I think referenced maybe once, pushed him along to the car to take him downtown. They changed their story, Dan, right then and there. Right. And during that Huntley hearing, I think that was one of the key reasons why, and I'll get to the result, Sam Summer wins the Huntley hearing, which basically says that um, without a confession, there would have been no way to find him guilty of the murder of Irving Silver. And I have that in writing. I have that assigned document from former Suffolk County Assistant District Attorney George Aspland signs the document that says, without an oral confession from Mr. Summer, prosecuting him for the crime of murder would be so weak, we would have never been able to do it. So, we're, I'm not a legal expert. I'm not going to pretend that I am one. But common sense tells me, and the more I've talked to people about this, they just shake their head. Common sense tells me that if he wins a Huntley hearing, and he doesn't ever confess, as they, they meaning the county, later attest to in 1979 by sending him a settlement check. Therefore, he should have never been arrested in the first place. So, Dan, what's eerie about this is it all goes back to the arrest, which wasn't an arrest. It was a kidnapping. Mm-hmm. This is what makes this case so bizarre that... Let me just jump over the fence for a second here. In 1979, while Sam's in prison, he gets a check. I have it. I have a copy of it. It's in the book. He gets a check from Suffolk County for five grand. And in the notation of the check, it says, I don't have it in front of me. I'm going to paraphrase. It says for issues related to on May 22nd, 1968, the night he was kidnapped. So you take the check, you take the Huntley hearing victory, and you put that all in a pot and you mix it up, he's innocent. Now we'll get one more bombshell in a little bit, but let me go back to Huntley hearing for you, because I think I know where you're going to go next, obviously. He wins a Huntley hearing. Months later, the second, I think they called it the second department at the time. Um, The county appeals it. Now here's what's eerie. Why would the county appeal that? Sam wins a Huntley hearing, which means he doesn't have to go to murder trial. Did they really have it out for him that much, Dan? Here's where I think this case takes a really creepy, creepy turn down a one-way street of evil and hate. You, most people that I've spoke to in the legal profession said they would have let it go. You know, he won that hearing. Let's just let it go. No. The county appeals it. And I believe it was a five-member judge panel with two of the five judges having ties in their career to Suffolk County. They overturn the Huntley hearing. Unheard of, by the way. Unheard of at the time. I met with a lawyer recently on Long Island about this. Unheard of. They overturn it. And you know why? They say that when he was in, Sam Summer was in jail the night of May 22nd, when the beating took place, that they left the room for five minutes and he self-inflicted his own wounds. Now, think about what's odd about that, too, now. Now you have admission from the court system, the the panel of judges, that that there actually was some 
you know, uh, alterations made to his physical appearance. See, this whole thing is just odd. So they overturned this thing. He has to go to murder trial. Here's what else is interesting. Eugene Lamb, his attorney, and I did not know this until after the book was published. This is brand new information. Eugene Lamb wanted to step off the case. He did not want to um, represent Mr. Summer anymore. Suffolk County made Lamb stay on the case for the murder trial. And according to Sam and his family, and I understand it's only one voice, but according to Sam and his family, Lamb's performance at the murder trial was completely irrelevant. He was completely checked out. He did not raise and, and, and ask questions. He was not tenacious toward the prosecution at all. So Summer ends up going to prison for 21 years. And all these strange things happen while he's in prison. He gets that check for a settlement. He gets a visit in 1982 by a guy named E. Thomas Boyle. What's the, what's the significance of Boyle? He's still alive today in Long Island. He hung up on me. I want to talk to him last year very politely and give him a voice for the book. I wanted to give Detective Gill a voice for the book, very politely. Gill, through a family member, said, doesn't want to talk. Boyle right. hangs up on me. Boyle says, Chris, no, he didn't use my name. He said, he said, I will have nothing to comment on this story. Click. Boyle is a practice, private practicing attorney who, in 1982, makes a full day's drive from Long Island up to Clinton, New York, Clinton Prison. Uh, they call it Little right. Siberia in upstate New York. Takes a whole day and drives up there, tells Mr. Summer he has information on who killed Irving Silver. Can I represent you? Well, of course. Please. Sure. He's never heard from again. And he ends up becoming Suffolk County attorney. So when you when you put these things together, were there bad judges and bad cops, Dan? Yes. But I really am convinced this is a case about evil and it's a case about hate. I think this was a hate crime before it was even coined by the media in the 1980s against a Jewish American in New York who had built an empire, and because he turned down certain people to invest in uh, endeavors together, they had it out for him. I wanted to ask about, and we'll get to this in a second, but you mentioned that that this is a, a evil, uh, it's a hate crime. I, I'm reading through this, I thought, isn't a possibility to consider is that the police are all mobbed up yeah. and owe favors yeah. to people in the mafia or the mafia. It, yeah. Favors from the police. Favor, Absolutely. Favors from the judiciary. Absolutely. And you know, if I may dovetail on that, Sam Summer, from all of our research, we may be a little off on this, but from all of our research, he was really the first guinea pig of what has turned out to be, Dan, decades and decades of corruption on Long Island. Now, with D.A. Sini, who came into play, I think, in 2018, I'm going to tip my hat to Suffolk County. They've done a lot of things to clean up um, ever since uh, uh, D.A. Spoda was arrested, indicted back in uh, fall of 2017. Sini came in. He, start, he started this Integrity Bureau to go back and review all these cases where they think the mafia was involved and a lot of injustice was done. I'm glad they're doing that. I think that's a classy move, and I think it's long overdue. But you know what? Mr. Summer and his family have really been railroaded 
for so many years. Do you know that his kids were not even able to go to school? Do you know that when he went to prison in 71, Elaine, you want to talk about a hero? Wow, damn. Mm-hmm. She yeah. packs up the station wagon with the kids. Yeah, and you know where I'm going with this, and this is a whole separate story. But those little kids and that wife of his, they want to be with dad and husband. So they follow him from prison to prison in New York State. Their house was mysteriously repossessed. His business was taken over. There's your mafia connection, allegedly, but there's your mafia connection. Why is he moved from prison to prison, basically, in his, in his first go-around every 18 months, every two years? Good behavior. You know, you got to get to know this guy as a person. And I'm not saying, you know, end of the day, I don't know if he did this or not. Only the Lord knows up above. But I can tell you there is a mountain of technicalities and reasonable doubt. And we'll get to a bombshell in just a minute for your listeners. They move to whatever community he's in. They run out of money. Elaine Silver's bouncing checks. She had the FBI after her. She's got little kids sleeping in the backseat of cars just so they could be with their dad. And they never brought their angst with them inside prison. And he never brought his angst with them when they visited. They kept it from one another out of love. You know what I mean? Just incredible. Now, Judge Robert Levy, uh, real quickly for your listeners, Judge Robert Levy, who today serves as a federal magistrate judge in the Eastern District of New York. I think he's semi-retired. Judge Levy, back in 2007, when Sam was released from prison in um, 91, got to Reno, you know, he got to know his family again, and blah, 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 some time had passed. Levy goes on uh, an investigation through the Civil Liberties Union to try to find a copy of an autopsy report, Dan, that to this day... Yeah, 18,000 days later, Sam Summer has never seen a copy of the autopsy report that they used during trial, or they referenced, I should say, referenced during trial. Judge George McInerney, in 68, put an order in that the prosecution needs to cough up a copy of the autopsy report. They never have. Now, I'm not a legal expert, but I've been told that's contempt of court. Um, Judge Well, it's it's crucial. It's crucial. yeah, it's crucial it to the it's crucial to the evidence. Also, tell us at the same time because you know the audience doesn't know. You haven't told us exactly what the original ME said about cause of death, time of death. Again, we don't even know how the outline of how possibly Sam could not have had an alibi for when they believed that Silver was killed. But again, yeah. this autopsy report would shed a lot of light on on that and the issue. We should discuss, too, is whether it was a pipe, as the the detectives contended, or a a, a hit and run, which are completely different. Absolutely, and that directly relates to why they could never get an indictment in the first place, because originally they were talking about, I don't want to say so much a hit and run, but I guess it was. He ran him over. That was the, the cause of death. Reported in a medical examiner's report. But then later an autopsy report talks about the cause of death as a lead pipe. But that's going to have direct relationship to this indictment issue that to this day has not been answered for. So you have these – plus you also have paperwork in the mid-2000s that comes up that has a handwritten note from from the DA's office that 
he wasn't tried for murder. They wrote in the word manslaughter, yet he served 21 years for murder. Let me tell your listeners real quickly why these, this change of crime thing happened. So on May 18th, which was the day of Irving Silver's funeral, basically the day after he was found, Jewish tradition, May 18th, there was um, an indictment for Mr. Summers' arrest. Now, this is four days before he was kidnapped. The grand jury said, no, we're not issuing an indictment because there's no evidence based on a hit and run that he even did this. Ironically, on May 22nd in the morning, the uh, count or the DA goes back to a grand jury with a different crime. I, I'm sorry, still murder, a different cause of crime, a lead pipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The indictment is dismissed again, two times. Then he's kidnapped. Then they ram through another one on May 20, or they actually ram through the first indictment on paper on May 23rd, and it wasn't signed. So here's what happens. Here's what happens. In 2015, through the Freedom of Information Act, at the age of 79 with a cane in his hand with his son-in-law, Mr. Summer is granted permission to go to Yapank out on Long Island and, and search the archives of all the documents associated with his case over all these years. It was a major breakthrough. Yeah. He was never able to see anything from Suffolk County. They just ignored him. They ignored him, ignored him, ignored him for years. He finds in a carton a a paperwork, a piece of paper that says supplemental report, supplemental report filled out by Detective Gill. Notice the date of the report, April 22nd, 1971, a month after Mr. Summer sent to prison, one of the kidnapping detectives completes a report. And on the report, what's the first date? May 23rd, indictment. For arrest dismissed. This paperwork was covered up for 44 years. Here's where it gets real eerie. Just two weeks ago, and this is not even in the book. This brings us to where his case is today, by the way. Just two weeks ago, Sam put, started to put something together. He found paperwork from 2007 filled out by uh, Suffolk County. On the paperwork, it was a timeline of his case. You know what the first date was? May 18th. No indictment. May 22nd, arrested. How come May 18th and May 22nd were not on Gill's supplemental report that was filed into the darkness, into the abyss? Our big thing that we're saying now is if you're going to send someone to prison for 21 years, your paperwork ought to match. Dan, to this day, it has not matched. And so now we are going full speed ahead for his innocence through the Integrity Bureau at Suffolk County. He just submitted, Sam did, his application. It's about three and a half inches thick. It was just received today by Suffolk County, and there's going to be some major media attention on his case. How haunting that's is incredible. that? that yeah, something? that's incredible. You, you also talk about that he used his time to great benefit when he was in prison studying law and then even getting a long-distance degree in law to yeah, help himself, Boston and University. that's what he did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he was able to actually get his high school uh, credential in prison, and he completed law classes through Boston University, and he mentored other inmates. And that, you know, back in the 70s, I get it. Prison culture was pretty rough. 
in New York as it probably was around the country. There was a lot of segregation. So for him to be a mentor to other inmates probably didn't sit well with the guards. And they just they, they kept moving him. They didn't want to deal with him. But yeah, yeah, he just he, he kept focused all these years, knowing that someday maybe he would get the chance to just lift this burden off. And he wants to do it for his family. You know, he's got 30, a combined uh, 30 great-grandchildren, grandchildren, and children. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I, he just, he's 83. He just had three surgeries in the last two years. He survived a 911 call last Christmas time, last Christmas season. I think he's being kept around for a reason. Um, he just wants his family to know that, that he's innocent. And this and this book has uh, had a purpose, had a, a, a much bigger purpose than just to tell the story. What was that purpose for Samuel and his family? Yeah, it was more than just to tell the story. It was also to just raise awareness about justice. It was to raise awareness about persevering together in love as a family. It was about to raise awareness that this would not happen to other people. And in a strange kind of way, Dan, I think that's come around full circle now because of what we're seeing going on with uh, Detective, I'm sorry, District Attorney Sini in Suffolk County. And I think a lot of the issues that are in this book, even though we're, we're talking about 50 years ago, these issues are now becoming more, our people are looking at them through a different lens. And so once upon a time when we first saw Rodney King being beat by those officers, yeah, I don't think people believed it. They said, well, you know, when you'd hear reports of people being beaten, they said, well, they must have done something. You know, the, yeah. you really didn't believe till you get these clear, very, very clear indications that that's exactly what happened. And that's well said, Dan. That's an excellent point because to to Mr. Summer, he didn't believe this could even happen. He he loved law enforcement. He put so much faith and and you know, he he really supported law enforcement. He thought it was just one big misunderstanding. For a long time he thought it was one big misunderstanding and that, you know, they would clear it up and they would apologize and he would accept, he would forgive them. But as time progressed, that didn't seem to be the case. And then we found other things happening with Suffolk County over the years of of similar, you know, means of or demonstrations of corruption and injustice, sadly. And so that's all come full circle too. But that's an excellent point, Dan. That really is. This is an amazing book, uh this book railroaded. And what does uh Samuel think about the book now that it's been published? Well, for him, it's a it's it's a very important moral victory for him. You know, I look back at the process of, of putting this together with him and, and for him and and for his family, for his family. I mean, this just opened up a lot of emotions, good emotions. It opened up a lot of truth. You know, there was, there was a, this, this book helped Sam learn about the whole family surviving in the backseats of cars. He didn't know that after all these years until just a couple of years ago because it came up in a conversation when I was out in New York visiting with his family. A lot of this stuff came out, and it was good because they were able to cry together and they were able to put closure on this together. So, again, he did this not only to help rid 
injustice from his soul and from his shoulders, but he just wants other people to be aware that sadly this kind of thing can happen and and just to um you know kind of live your life with the eyes in the back of your head you have to sometimes it's just the way it is Elaine is such a a heroic figure in this yeah. um so strong for her husband so defiant uh with the judiciary you know she wasn't quiet about her um disagreement or very disagreed with everything that w- went on in the treatment yeah. of her husband when she saw her husband in the condition that he could barely talk and he was beaten up she was not she was very vocal i want to one other thing that was very interesting too and at least lend some credence to the idea that sam's idea because that's what's featured in this book sam's thoughts sam's ideas sam's investigation sam bringing up points to help his own fight for justice that uh, his attorney lamb presented a plea bargain to him at one point didn't it? It demonstrates a lot of things about innocence yes. and Sam's integrity. Tell us about yeah. this. Yeah, there was a, there was a chance. Yep, excellent, Dan. There was a chance during the um, proceedings for the murder trial uh, where a plea bargain was presented to him for less time, considerably less time. Uh, I think that's where the manslaughter element came in, and Sam just. You know, I, I think at that point he was more upset that that was ever even yeah. presented to him. He was upset not only with the county, but Lamb. That Lamb would even bring it to him because he passionately knew he was innocent and that that would even be out of the question. Now, in hindsight, doing what? Five years versus 21? Yeah. yeah. You know, if you would accept mm-hmm. that. But it just it, it just proves that his innocence was genuine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a it you know these two strong incredible heroic characters uh, the only thing you could ever say about Sam. I mean, cuz we didn't even get into this 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 guy's just an incredible family man. If this is a kind of guy that you the police think they can just take and beat and then ruin a business, ruin a life, ruin a family man. Yeah. This is a, a guy that they totally didn't understand and I don't think that's what it was. I don't think it was a misunderstanding at all. But this person, um, you know, the kind of person that they went and ruined this guy's life, um, it, yeah. it, you know, it's amazing. The only mistake he made yeah. was this association with mobsters. Right. That's the right. only mistake. Being too and, good and, of a guy, fast, giving somebody yeah, a second chance. The, yeah, and in the fast, busy, ever-changing world of commerce that was going on in New York City, trying to identify and define itself as – you know, a leader in garments and food and all this stuff. It was it was somewhat unavoidable for him, but yeah. you know, he was worried about his his relative too, and his relative son getting caught up in all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, in hindsight, when you look back at that as well, probably just even conversing with those folks led to led to his plight in in some regard. You bet. Well, it's incredible. He, he he makes a position for Irving Silver, his wife's uncle, and yep. it really he created a position that would help this guy deal with his dying wife, and then his in the the, the financial crunch that this guy was in. Yeah, I mean, you can't get him. It didn't seem everything he did was altruistic. And incredible, right. this injustice right. absolutely upon him. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you very much, uh, Christopher, for coming on and talking about Railroaded, Frame for Murder, Fighting for Justice. Do you have a Facebook page or a website that people might refer to? Yeah, a couple different places. And and first of all, thank you, Dan. I I love your show. Your show is very important in the world of justice, and it just gets a lot of wonderful perspective out there that would otherwise be suppressed. So thank you, and God bless the work you, you do. A, a couple places your your listeners can go, uh, ChristopherJossart.com is a website, so that's just my complete author name, ChristopherJossart.com. You can find some more info there. Uh, and also Wild Blue Press. I know you've had Stephen Jackson on before in mm-hmm. the past. He's an amazing author. What a storyteller yeah. he is. So WildBluePress.com. Uh, forward slash railroaded is where you'll find some more information there as well. Yeah, this Steve Jackson and the Wild Blue Press and the, and the incredible stable of really great emerging authors and you know yeah. veteran authors, but really, really a great place for true crime uh, book writing. Absolutely, you bet. I want to thank bet. you very much, Christopher Jossart. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for this interview. You have a great night. Thanks as well, Dan. You too. Bye bye. Good night. <laughs> 